Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. Before we start, there's just one thing I want to ask of our lovely public. Those people that make it all worthwhile, Gary. You can't ask that. No, no. (laughs) I want to ask them to vote for my book at close range. Life and Death in an Artillery Regiment, 1939-45. And this is for the Military History Book Awards by Military History Matters. A magazine, a fine magazine. A magazine that gave me the award about two years ago. So... how can you vote, Pete? Um, well, uh, just look up Military History Matters uh, and History Book Award, or you can follow the link on Twitter and Facebook. <sighs> on our pages on Twitter and Facebook. No, anybody. Or just anybody. Anybody should be there. Anyway, so. It's a great book, Pete. I'll blame Smoke Up Your Backside. Vote now. Hooray! I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete, Pete and Gary's Military History. history. Podcast. Hello. Hello. I'm Peter Hart, and who are you? I'm Gary Bain, and welcome to uh, a podcast today. What's it about, Pete? It's called <laughs> Arras Air War 1917, and this episode's the second. It's called Winter's Freezing. Wow. Wow. That sounds exciting. Now, just before it? we start. Like, well, more notes. Yeah, no, we've we've had some problems with the uh, the microphones lately. So, can you get off my knee and just move a bit further away? That's it. Go on. Uh, 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 is that yeah, fair? Yeah. Now face the other way. <laughs> Brilliant. Right now we can carry on. That's completely different, isn't it? <laughs> now, uh, what, so what's this about? Well, we what we did a, an episode. What's going on? Which tried to explain the bigger background. Now we're actually looking at, at, at what's going on leading up to the Battle of Arras, which would commence on the 9th of April 1917, um, which in itself was a diversion to the main massive Nivelle French attack, which would be launched uh, in the Aisne area round about mid-April. Uh, um, but do you know what? Is the Battle of Arras just a teeny-weensy diversion, do you think, Gary? No, I mean, it's a major operation, a war in its own right, and it, but it had very clearly defined objectives. And uh, one of those objectives was uh, the right of the First Army, commanded by General Henry Horn. What was, a great name that is. It is. He was to, Well, he wasn't. His army was to <laughs> capture Vimy Ridge uh, that lay it, just about three miles to the northeast of Arras. 
that's no small undertaking. It's not. The French have been battering our way up there. They've taken most of it, but it's going to be left to the Canadians and some British units to uh, to finish the job. But if it was successful, it would offer a superb observation platform over the whole of the uh, Douai Plain. Very good pronunciation there. But that isn't... I mean, if you read, uh, if you read a lot of uh, what I call Twitter historians... Uh, a bad Twitter historians, there's some excellent Twitter historians, you, you, you get the impression that's all that was going to happen. But in actual fact, the, the main offensive was by the Third Army, commanded by the Bull. Who's the Bull, Gary? Uh, General Edmund Allenby. Was he even-tempered and calm? <laughs> what do you think he was called the Bull for? Mm, were there any China shops nearby? Mm. So what what were the Third Army commanded to do? Well, they had to take their higher ground. It's not as high as the, as uh, Vimy Ridge, but it, it's a high ground around the village of Monchy le Preux, uh, which would turn the German lines and allow a, a sort of rapid exploitation south, heading towards Croissel and Bullecourt. I think we're going to put a map up, or will I forget? You'll forget, but we will put a map up. <laughs> Does that mean you'll put it up? Now, artillery was at the very centre of both Allenby and Horn's plans. Uh, for the Battle of Arras. The uh, thousands upon thousands of new recruits who joined the Royal Artillery in 1914-1915 had, by this time, been bedded down into their units. And yeah, they'd mastered their trades, hadn't they? Which they hadn't done, remember, by the time of the Somme. So individual skill levels at every level are higher, aren't they? Which means they're more likely to hit their target and be able to carry out complicated tasks. Yeah, yeah and gunnery itself had become an increasingly exact science, and, and science is the right word for it. It is. The uh, necessity for exact calibration of the guns, the importance of allowing for different meteorological conditions. I didn't think you'd be able to say meteorological. The ability to organise complete Complex, can't say complex. Oh, the ability to organise complex barrages, not just for a battery or an artillery brigade, but for massive concentrations of guns. All these have been thoroughly worked out. Yeah, and it's not just that. It's, it's practical things like the role of each calibre of gun had been defined properly, clearly defined. And speci- those specific roles were laid out within a sort of all-encompassing barrage. So they'd all be doing their jobs within this great huge barrage. Anything yeah. else? Yeah, direct observation was supplemented by aerial observation. Ah, we've been on about this before. We, but we there's have. other things, aren't there? Yeah, flash spotting and sound ranging to fix the location of every German gun ready to uh, neutralise them when the moment came. You know, fill in what what neutralise actually means. Would well, neutralise be painful? Yeah, it would for the Germans. Uh, yeah, so the three methods, uh, aerial observation, I think that's the main one, but flash spotting and sound ranging gaining increasing importance. Uh, really good. Uh, something else had really changed since the Somme. Well, what was the biggest thing people always go on about the preliminary bombardments, that they hadn't cut the wire? Well, what's happened that's new, Gary? What's new? Well, there'd been the gradual introduction of the uh, uh, 106 fuse, which basically burst instantaneously on the slightest contact with anything it touched, uh, before the shell could sort of bury itself deep in the mud. I was just thinking of your sexual performances there for some reason. (laughs) What, barbed wire? (laughs) I'll leave that to you to work out. Surrounded by barbed wire. Let's move on. No, no, that was this at all. <laughs> I know. Now, ever-increasing numbers of heavy guns were targeted on specific targets so that their destruction could be virtually guaranteed. As, as virtually guaranteed as anything ever can be, yeah. Anything else? 
Yeah, creeping barrages were, were now commonplace. Now, they'd, they'd come in. The French, I believe, had brought them in first, but then the British had increased... Not the Canadians. Oh, well, the French Canadians, perhaps. And then they they gradually uh, sort of developed, hadn't they? During the Somme, uh, the British... It had become a main... Uh, weapon of war of the British. How? How? Are they, 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 what's well, going on? Well, yeah. I mean, they're they're increasingly more sophisticated and complex. That is that word again. Um, some even incorporated new smoke shells to try to blind the enemy as the infantry attacked. Now that is a world away, Gaza from uh, Gaza. <laughs> it's it's a world away from what what happened before the first of July on the Somme, isn't it? It is a different thing. It, this is a. It's different now. What? But Gary, this is about the Royal Flying Corps. Why? Why are we wittering on about the artillery? Why, Gary? Why? Well, it's because the Royal Flying Corps is an integral part of this build-up. Their photographs and artillery observation held the key not only to the detailed planning process, but above all to securing the efficient use of the mass guns. Failure was not an option, and uh, the Royal Flying Corps casualties were deemed an irrelevance in comparison to the thousands of lives that could be risked in a ground offensive. So the Royal Flying Corps is going to direct, it's like a a, a handmaiden to the artillery. Exactly, and we've said that before, haven't we? Trenchard understood completely the role of the Royal Flying Corps as a part of the army. Who had a role to deliver whatever the casualties. Hmm... Now, New Year's dawning. We, we had a, we talked about what happened in sixteen in the last episode and in previous podcasts. But uh, th- so there's a lot of, there's a lot for the Royal Flying Corps to do before the Arras offensive in early April, isn't there? Um, lots of uh, challenges, lots of new things to do. Yeah, I mean there was a feeling in the Royal Flying Corps that the old order had changed. The uh, the sort of Reorganisation of the German air service had resulted in the uh, establishment of no less than 25 jesters. Was it any more than? No less than. Now, in contrast, the Royal Flying Corps had only eight single-seater scout squadrons, of which only two were armed with machines that could conceivably challenge the albatross. Yeah, I mean, head-to-head, to, head to head, most of our machines were hopelessly outclassed by the albatross, weren't they? they any, were. any marker, D1, D2, D3, or D-bloody-what-you-like. Yeah, and despite their best efforts, it's slowly becoming apparent that the focal point of conflict in the air had moved from the German rear areas... Uh, to sort of hover right above the opposing so front line trenches. You're talking trenches. about Trenchard's policy of pushing the German aircraft back and, and leaving the whole of the front line and rear areas in our control. But now it's it's sort of getting nearer the front line. Yeah, yeah. and you're going to be Lieutenant Roderick Hill of 60 Squadron, RFC. By January 1917, the aerial superiority, which we had gained during the earlier phases of the Somme battle, had sensibly waned. Nothing alarming had happened. The, the process had been gradual, almost insidious. Our morale was just as high. We appeared to push just as vigorously over the lines. And yet there was a different feeling in the air. Frank's surprise at seeing a Hun over our lines had changed imperceptibly into annoyance. Who's wow. Frank? And why is he surprised? <laughs> Very amusing. Now, pilots couldn't help but notice that formations of albatrosses were carrying out more and more regular patrols in a concerted effort to sweep the skies of the British Army cooperation. 
Miss James. Uh, what 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 does this all mean? What's what what happens? What's going to start happening? Well, inevitably, the casualties start to rise, and uh, there was a call for close escorts from the scouts who were still tied to their offensive patrols so over the, the German the, lines. So the the scout that the, the uh, army cooperation machines are wanting more protection from the scouts, di- direct escorts. Yeah, well, that's, it's, that's it's, not it's, that's not. Tanchard's plan, though, isn't no, it? No, no, no. It's a complicated game of bluff and counter-bluff as each side sought to impose their will over the battlefield skies. Ooh. It's an early example of, of air control, isn't it? Controlling yeah, the airspace. It is. And if scouts are diverted to a defensive role, then, of course, they're not available for offensive operations. And, and if, if they cease to exert so much pressure then the initiative will pass to the Germans. It, it is bluff and counter-bluff almost. And it's a, it's, a, it's a problem, isn't it? How would you describe it? You mean it? a conundrum? Damn. If you're struggling with that word, do you think I was going to struggle with that word? <laughs> yes. So it was a conundrum that had to be resolved by Trenchard before the before, spring of 1917. Before, before, yeah. It would test even his hardened resolve. He had a pretty hardened resolve. His resolve was well known for being hard. Yeah. Now... Trenchard, did he know what was happening? Did he have a proper appreciation of, the, of what, what his men were faced with? Yeah, I mean, he knew that uh, the squadrons needed a better aircraft than the long-serving but hopelessly obsolete B-2 series. Yeah, that's the Army cooperation ones. They yeah, want I mean, to that... do all the artillery support work, aren't and they? And the aircraft, they date back to 1914. So, so, but they had a replacement, didn't they? The RE8. Uh, well, it, certainly that was the intended replacement. What does RE8 stand for? Um, our um, rear echelon eight. Oh, funnily enough, I'm not certain myself. I think it's recon- oh. reconnaissance experimental. Oh, but the design work had begun for the REA early in 1916. That's uh, a year before, yeah. But it's only in November 1916 that 52 Squadron arrived on the Western Front equipped with RE-8s. Now, what happens when there's a new aircraft? Well, this is common to all new aircraft, but after a painful rush of accidents, the RE-8s are somewhat embarrassingly withdrawn to be replaced once again with the BE-2Es. Ooh, the RE eight was rumoured. <laughs> the RE eight was rumoured to be a jinxed it, aircraft. It, 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 this happens almost every new aircraft. Um, uh, but in the end, it would prove a couple of tinkered. They, they did tinker with it, but it was a perfectly safe and stable, stable aircraft. The, uh, there was a bit of a problem with the Germans shot at it, but there you go. That's the uh, thing. Uh, and they arrive. When do they actually get to the front properly? Well, <laughs> probably in February 1917, the first squadrons are, are equipped with RE-8s. Uh, the 21st squadron is the first, I think. And does it happen quickly or is it a gradual process? No, it's very gradual. The the B-2 uh, and various variants are gradually withdrawn from frontline service, although it does take several months. Uh, is there several months between uh, February and uh, early April? No. Right, so they're still fine to be two Cs, well, variants. Right, got that? Now, the REA, it remains a controversial aircraft throughout the war. It, it does have additional speed, up 100, to 100, 105 miles yeah, per hour. Yeah, that's welcome, uh, as was its forward-firing Vickers machine gun. Uh, and also, the rear cockpit uh, for the observer was a hand, with a handy Lewis gun. That helped protect the tail. But the delays of almost a year before it was delivered in numbers meant that by the time it was in action, guess what? It's already outdated. A bit obsolescent, yeah. Um, 
Had they just ordered a few? Yeah, unfortunately, it had been ordered in bulk. Thousands. Of course, yeah, of course, and it had to be. Well, of course, it, why wouldn't they? Thousands were in the process of being built by contractors across the length and breadth of Britain. It is the new Army Cooperation Aircraft, and there's no way there's going to be another one suddenly. The RFC's just stuck with it, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and it's also, until they arrive, stuck with the B-2Cs. Now, that, that, it's not only the Army Cooperation aircraft that Trenchard's worried about, is it? What else is he worried about? Well, he's also worrying about the, the number and quality of his scout squadrons. In the interim, he's simply got to make do with what he had. What had he? Well, he's got the DH-2 single-seater. What does DH stand for, Gary? De Havilland 2. Spot on, chum. Single-seater pusher scout. Uh, that means that the, uh, the engine's behind the pilot. Uh, and that had triumphed in the Somme skies of 1916. But it was seriously outclassed by the new Albatross scouts. Uh, it was. It really was. Uh, uh, that had happened quickly. The FE-8... What's that stand for? <laughs> I don't know. Excellent. Oh, fighter experimental. Yeah, that was another single-seater. I don't think it is. Farnham experimental, I would imagine. Uh, single-seater pusher. It's a bit like the DH-2, isn't it? Uh, equally outdated, would you say, Gary? Yeah. Now, the Sopwith Pup. Oh, it's beautiful, Gary. It's well, it, beautiful. Was, it was a simple, well-balanced aircraft, and, and apparently they were a delight to fly. I'm not sure you'd have got in one. The problem was that they were badly underpowered. Their small <laughs> 80 horsepower... I'm ignoring that. Their small <laughs> 80 horsepower rotary engine could only generate a maximum speed of just under 100 mile per hour at altitudes above 10,000 feet. It's also... I mean, how many, how many machine guns does the Albatross have? And the answer's two. Because that's not a test. But, but how Two. Many, how, well, spot on, Gary. Well done. Uh, how many does uh, how many Vickers does the uh, stop with? <coughs> well, it has a, a single Vickers gun, uh, which also left them out. Left them out gunned by the Albatross. It, it was capable of competing with the Albatross, but it would always do it at a slight but significant disadvantage. Yeah, I'm not sure if that the word slight should be there. I know I put it there, but it is a distinct advantage, isn't it? Uh, now the French. Now the French help us, don't they? And and I think this is a testament. Later in 1918, they do the same for the Americans. How do the French help us? Well, they supply two really good single-seater scouts. The first of which, the Newport 17, oh. was uh, an agile. Streamlined. streamlined aircraft, capable of reasonable speeds. That must mean I didn't know when I wrote this. It was slightly underarmed with a single Vickers machine gun and an optional single Lewis gun on the top wing. And I oh, think perched on the top wing, same as the SC5. Oh, well, I'm not supposed to be mentioning that, but yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And I think was it Albert Ball used the Newport something? For I a think while? he might have been in the 16 man. It's a series, but yeah, um, uh, he certainly did use it later on as well as the, the the one we're not mentioning. Now, what was the other aircraft they supplied, Pete? I don't know. Okay, good. That's the end of the podcast. Spad seven, <laughs> Spad seven. Uh, um, this is uh, <clears throat> less manoeuvrable, I would say, Pit, than the Newport Seventeen. But what what has it got in its favour? It's a bit like yourself, really. Oh, you mean it's robust uh, construction and relative <laughs> high speed, relative to a snail. No, yeah. it was relatively fast. You're quite right. Uh, forward firing, synchronised Vickers machine gun, and it, it it was it became a popular aircraft. The Spad and the Americans would use later versions of Spad a lot. None of them could really compete with the combination of speed and powerful performance at all altitudes and armament uh, of the, uh, the, the the Albatross. The Albatross has two synchronised belt driven Spandau. 
Uh, is that even, the D one at this point in time? The Albatross D one or D one two? D two's out and D three's on its way. Uh, mm. So, uh, and and the, even if they could have performed the Newports, the Spads, <clears throat> the Sopwith Pups, there weren't enough of them to throw into the battle when it mattered. But there's something else. Uh, there's another Sopwith Scout, and this is absolutely famous for some reason. And it's trick trickling is the right word for this one. It's the uh, Sopwith Triplane. Uh, what what are the advantages of the Sopwith Triplane? How many wings does it have? Let's do a, a simple test first. Triplane. That'll be three. Absolutely spot on. This is like a quiz. Yeah. Now that gave great manoeuvrability and a, and a superior field of vision. Uh, it's better greater than, than you could find in the usual biplane layout. Fast? Yeah, they could reach uh, up to 115 mile per hour. And they were fitted with one, or on occasion, two centrally mounted Vickers machine guns. Now, this was designed ages ago. They're, yep. they're, they're, this, I think this aircraft's a great lost scout, really. When was it originally designed? Well, May 1916. Uh, it was revolutionary, and uh, it, it, the nature what of... What happens to revolutionary ideas in Britain? Well, they don't tend to see the light of day quite often. But the, the, the revolutionary triplane nature of this excellent scout, it, it sort of blinded the British to the very real treasure that they'd uncovered. Uh, when the usual difficulties haunted their production, the expedient decision was taken to supply them only to the Royal Naval Air Service. In return for which, the Royal Flying Corps received in exchange all the SPAD 7s originally intended for the Royal Navy. So the Royal Flying Corps never flies the Sopwith triplane? Nope. That's a shame, isn't it? Uh, and the, again, there's never enough of them. Uh, the, the RNAS uh, don't have many of them. Who did like, uh, who did appreciate uh, the... Uh, the, the triplane. Well, if anything, the Germans did. Germans. They were more impressed, and indeed the legendary Fokker triplane, it had been largely ah. based on the template of the Sopwith triplane. Now, so it's all bad news in one sense, but there is a new generation of British aircraft waiting to take to the wings, and these would be the aircraft that would fight the rest of the war. Sadly, when it, the, the word waiting in the wings, does that mean ready by a, early April? No, I mean, it, it, again, it's it's order, uh, design, order, manufacture. These are not going to make an impact uh, in April 1917. So what do we have? We have the Scout Experimental Mark V. That'll be the SE5. Yeah. Uh, the Sopwith Scout. We'll come back to these in later podcasts. But it, that was an excellent Scout. Sturdy, uh, great at zooming down. It, it's a good Scout. And that uh, had two uh, Vickers one, machine guns. One Vickers and one uh, Lewis. Uh, Bristol Fighter. You've missed out the Sopwith Camel. Th- oh, sorry. I thought we were talking about the Sopwith Camel. No, that was the SE5. Oh, well, the Sopwith Camel, that's a more powerful version of, of the Sopwith Pup, it is, isn't it? isn't it? Yeah. And that does have twin Vickers machine guns. It does. That definitely does. And then there's another one. This is unusual for a fighter, the this Bristol, the Bristol fighter. fighter. Yeah, well, it's unusual because it's a two-seater, I presume you mean. Yeah. Uh, they, great things were hoped, but they didn't really know how to use it at that time because it's new. Uh, and then there's a promising DH-4 two-seater bomber. That, so there's new aircraft coming. And, of course, the RE-8 is uh, coming on stream. So there's, there's hope. Uh, none of them are going to be ready in time, though, are they? Uh, whatever's going to happen to Arras is going to happen mostly without them. Now, Trenchard, he, we've, we've discussed generals before. Uh, he's an even-tempered chap, isn't he? How yeah. did he take it? A, a wry smile, possibly? Well, he, he's absolutely livid with rage. As, no. as an old British comedian used to say, he could have crushed a grape. 
And I'm going to be... Hang on, who was that? It was Larry Grayson. Oh, God. Uh, I'm going to be... He wasn't a comedian. Brigadier Hugh Trenchard of the Headquarters Royal Flying Corps being absolutely livid. You're asking me to fight the battle this year with the same machines as I fought it last year. We shall be hopelessly outclassed and something must be done. I'm not panicking, but the Hun is getting more aggressive. I warned you fairly as far back as last September, and the Chief also warned you in November. And I warned the Air Board personally on the 12th of December. All I can say is that there will be an outcry from all the pilots out here if we do not have at least these few squadrons of fast machines. And what I have asked for is absolutely necessary. Did it do any good? No. 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 Now, Trenchard, you can tell the problems because the, the Royal Flying Corps is still relying on an aircraft we haven't mentioned yet, but I'm going to mention now. And that's the FE-2B. Now, what is the FE-2B? We've done it before. We've mentioned it. What is it? Well, it's, it's a, it's a two-seater pusher, and it's a, a multi-purpose aircraft. I think it had been a fighter, but now it's a it's strong, tough machine, isn't it? But it's multi-purpose by this time. Um, it, had, it had done well seizing the initiative from the Germans in the late spring of 16, before the Somme. Yeah, but what's its top speed? 90 miles an hour. Mm. Um, no effective... Replacement. So, what are they doing? What? 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 what uh, they can't be a fighter anymore. They well, they're captured. still sort of ploughing on the Western Front. They're used mainly in a, a daylight reconnaissance role or on bombing missions. But on occasion, they're still carrying out offensive patrols. Well, I, one of the th- one of the things that I love the FE two B. It looks great, and uh, to me, uh, it's got solid virtues that met that that have made it, and that's why it was able to endure longer than most. Uh, uh, so what are the virtues that you, that, that, that you can think of about the FE-2B? Well, we've mentioned this before. The, the solid engine provided a useful measure of protection to the pilot's back. Because it's a pusher, so there's a bloody great engine which provides a measure of cover. And it, it, it's also relatively difficult to shoot down for the more inexperienced German pilots. And they retain the capacity to bite back hard when flying in a tight defensive formation is this uh, some sort of simile for sort for british political life the next section gary it may well be flying round and round in circles with each observer protecting the blind spot of the aircraft in front and between them sending up a, a veritable howl of bullets they presented a formidable collective defensive power but they had only their disciplined tactics to hold on to it was vital that every pilot held his nerve and his place in the formation. Why? What would happen if, if someone broke? Well, if, if the formation cracked, the constituent aircraft were often doomed. Doomed, I say. The Germans are getting amongst them. And, yeah. And then it would be just mano-mano. Yeah, the, the observers, they've got to ignore the buffering as well as they stood. Oh, should we put a picture of our favourite picture? Yeah. Stood in the swaying nacelle cockpit, randomly swinging from side to side, totally exposed and struggling to maintain their precarious balance with nothing to hold on to but the guns. They were completely unprotected from the bitter lash of the wind. Now, you're going to be Sergeant Harold Taylor of 25 Squadron RFC. My hand and f- f- my feet and hands were frozen, and in, in spite of my face being well greased with Vaseline, my nose was frozen. On these flights, if any German machine had left its aerodrome to attack me, I could not have fired my guns. When eventually we landed home, all feeling had left my feet and hands, and to bring the circulation back was a very painful procedure. I drank very hot milk 
and rum. Now, whatever the grinding physical discomforts, whatever the threat from the marauding albatross or the lurking Archie... What's Archie? Anti-aircraft fire. The work still went on and on and on. How couldn't it? It has to, doesn't it? Because if they don't take out the German guns and things, yeah. Uh, so what's going to happen? Why? Why is it important to do it now? What was that reason that we were talking about? Well, because in just a few weeks, the British and Canadian infantry would be walking across the strip of no man's land between the two front lines. The machine guns would spit and chatter. And worst of all, any German artillery batteries that had not been spotted and destroyed would fire a withering deluge of shells to sweep away the assaulting troops. We've said this before. Yep. The casualties on the ground, if they don't do their job, are, are much, 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 so, much worse. You may be a crap aircraft, the FE-2B, or even more likely the BE-2s, um, but the photographs they're taking, they, they expose the hidden mysteries of the German defences. They lay them naked before the enemy shells, or British shells. That's, uh, but if you think about it, that's what they're doing. They, they not only locate the targets, but then with artillery observation, they guide the shells down. So their work is crucial. Um, now, on the other side, the situ- that's a, so it's pretty gloomy in one way for the British. Uh, what, what's the situation like for the Germans? Well, it, it's, it's far more promising. And uh, uh, their scout aircraft were, were outstanding and superior to anything the British could put up against them. But it wasn't only that. They also had... In, for example, uh, Lieutenant Manfred von Richthofen, one of the finest aerial leaders of the whole war. He was. He was, he was getting to his peak of his powers then, wasn't he? Um, uh, as a scout leader, as an ace, as an educator within the mess. Uh, he'd already got the Paul Emerit, uh, or Paul Emerite. Yeah, he's popularly known as the Blue Max. Ah, I wish I'd just said the Blue Max. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, he'd been with Volker's squadron. He'd learned everything from Volker. Uh, Volker's dicta, he was, he was in act. And he was posted in January 1917, I'm moving on, to take command of Jaster 11, which is based on the western outskirts of Douai. Now, uh, Jaster, it's it's basically about 12 aircraft, uh, 14 pilots. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. About seven aircraft ready to fly on a given day, I'm, I'm informed. Um... They could often be ineffective, not really pressing home any advantage they got. And, and they, they allowed the, the sort of numerical strength of the RFC to, to dominate them, to dominate the battlefields. Uh, they had better aircraft, but what, what's the problem? They've got better aircraft. Well, what's the problem? Outnumbered, but also what about what else? Is well, wrong? most of their pilots, they're still sadly inexperienced and they needed to be shown the way. Um, there's great potential there in Jester 11. Amongst the young pilots were Leutnants Kurt Wolf and Carl Almanroder, both of whom are uh, going to go on to become acclaimed aces over the next few months. And that's partly because they couldn't have been given a better teacher and leader than Rick Doffen. Uh, he, he was infused with the spirit of Bolker and his dicta. Yeah, and Rick Doffen, he, he was flying the potent new Albatross D3 for the first time. Don't tell me. Had it got a better engine still? Well, yeah, it had a yet more powerful Mercedes engine, but it also incorporated into the basic design the V-strut wing layer copied from the French Newport 17 Scouts. Now, the smaller lower wing was intended to improve the pilot's downward view, but it would actually prove a weakness. Yeah, they have to they have to take them in for repairs. That's one thing that holds them back. Now, Richthofen was... uh, what, what 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 does he do that's really a bold, dramatic gesture at this time? Well, he decides to adopt an all-red paint scheme. Uh, he deliberately marks himself out in the air and thereby strikes fear into his enemies, the bloody Red Baron of ah. Germany. It was the beginning of the enduring legend of the Red Baron. Yeah, it, uh, which endures to this day. I mean, uh, we, we normally sing Snoopy at this time, but this is a serious podcast, though. Now, it didn't take long before Rick Tuffer began to show the way forward to his new jester. On the 23rd of January, he led the attack against a patrol of some six FE-8s from 40 Squadron, supporting a photographic reconnaissance. So they're the escort, yeah. Now, in the melee that followed, Rick Tuffer swooped down on Lieutenant John Hay, and I'm going to be uh, Lieutenant Manfred von Richthofen of Jaster 11. Together with seven of my aircraft... I attacked an enemy squadron west of Long, or Linz. The aircraft I had singled out caught fire after I had discharged 150 shots into it from a distance of 50 metres. The aircraft fell burning. The occupant of the aircraft fell out of it at a height of 500 metres. Immediately after it crashed on the ground, I could see a heavy black smoke cloud rising. The aircraft burned for some time with frequent flares of flame. And there were witnesses that said that Hay deliberately chucked himself out of the aircraft. Why would he do that, Gary? It's horrible, this. Well, so that he doesn't burn to death. It's a better, a quick leap into, well, oblivion, isn't it? Um, next day, next day, Richtofen strikes again. And we're going to look at this in more detail because it sort of sums it up, really. On the 24th of January, seven FE-2Bs, 
Uh, two of them, with the all-important camera, went off on a mission to take a... Uh, well, they were going to take a mosaic of photographs. A mosaic is where each photograph is, can be joined together to give a complete picture of, of an area. And where are they doing? What, 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 why is it important? Well, they're, they're over Vimy Ridge. Yeah. Now, so two of them are being escorted by five of the same class of aircraft. This is a bit strange. They're not fast. It's gonna. I can see why problems might come here. Now, we're going to look at two of them, aren't we? Who are they? So the two were Captain Oscar Gregg, accompanied by his observer, Lieutenant John McLennan. And they're in one of the FE-2Bs. And what are they doing? Well, They're, they're, they're one of the two taking the photos, yeah, aren't they? Yeah. Now... The escort took up station behind and above them as they flew over Vimy Ridge. Once they'd started their run, Greg and McLennan were completely preoccupied in trying to achieve the, uh, as you describe it, tight mosaic structure required to make a success of the photographs. That do not sound easy, Gary. And, no. Uh, I'm going to be Lieutenant John McLennan. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm actually the, the, the photographer, uh, and, and uh, well, the observer, and I, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this. I am going to say this because it's the first word. This entails great accuracy in the actual exposures. A stopwatch being used so as to entail a correct overlap of each exposure. It is further necessary to keep at an exact altitude and to fly in a direct line. Otherwise, results obtained are unsatisfactory. Thus, the taking of photographs fully employs the intention of both pilot and observer. Now, wow. uh, so they're doing this, aren't they? Are they uh, so they're completely caught up in this, aren't they? They're, they're, they're doing their job and they're relying on the escort to protect them, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, that, that's how they're going. Now, you're going to be Captain Oscar Gregg. You're the pilot. I was standing up on the rudder bar, looking from the mat to the ground, getting the machine in exactly the right position and keeping it on an even keel, the camera being a fixed one. The observer was looking through the camera sights and just beginning to take the exposure. There had been a complete absence of anti-aircraft shells, but I thought this was because they were waiting for us to get further from our lines. That's uh, because there might be somebody else. But now you can imagine if you're in the same aircraft, there's no leeway because you, you got it's. You, there's no difference in speed really. So between and getting the right distance between the escort and the 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 uh, the. the for photographic machines is going to be tricky. Why is it going to be tricky? Well, if the escort's too far away, it it would be too late to intervene before any damage was done. Well, 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 well couldn't they just be flying the same formation? Then? Well, too close, and they would have no chance to manoeuvre to uh, uh, interpose themselves between the attacking aircraft and the intended victim. Now, in this case, what had happened is there's no two ways about it. The escort was too far away. Uh, what, what, what moment do you think? Uh, uh, when, when do you think Rick Doffin would choose to strike? Well, at that moment, that uh, it's a maximum advantage. He, he adroitly sees the chance to surprise his intended victims. He certainly bloody does. And you're going to be Captain Oscar Gregg, the pilot. I heard a machine gun and saw several bullet holes appear in the left wing. I turned to the right in a steep bank nearly upsetting my observer, hoping to get the enemy in front of me and also to get back to my escort. But on completion of half a circle, the enemy fired another burst from the right side, 
putting the engine out of action and hitting me in the right ankle, knocking that foot off the rudder bar. Must have been a hell of a bloody shock for him. I also uh, feel quite sorry for the observer who is, if you remember, leaning over the side of the aircraft when he suddenly turns right. Um, you're going to be, no. and I'm going to be, Lieutenant John McLennan. Uh, and here he says this. I was actually taking photographs when a burst of machine gun fire from behind notified the attack. I looked around and perceived a red enemy machine diving away. In the first attack, he shot through both oil and petrol tanks and splintered the propeller. Captain Gregg was also shot through both le legs. I'm not sure mm. it was both, but... Now, as we mentioned, the escort's too far away to intervene. And, and indeed, they were probably more concerned with cutting their losses by protecting themselves and the second FE-2B reconnaissance Why? machine. Why? Protecting them from whom? Well, they were, they, they were worried about a simultaneous attack by other members of JASTA-11. So, it, Rick, while Richter often attacked there, that, that this one, the, the others are attacking the others. I see, I see. Now, uh, had Richtoff, now uh, I think his first victim was an FE-2B, and he, he nearly flew into the back of it. Had he learned uh, how to deal with an FE-2B? Yeah, he, he understood that the FE-2B was all but defenceless to an attack launched from below and behind. And uh, he was expert in exploiting such weaknesses to his own advantage. And you're going to be Captain Oscar Gregg. I continued in circles, endeavouring to get a sight of the enemy but he succeeded in keeping below and behind me. Oh! I saw several tracer bullets pass through the instrument board between me and my observer. The firing stopped and we made for the lines, but at this turn the observer pointed behind the machine, indicating another attack. A second later, a small scarlet biplane passed over us and went away to the right. Now, they wouldn't know it was a Red Baron then, I presume. He would know later on. Now, uh, I'm going to be... Uh, I mean... <laughs> Can you imagine it, Gary, what, what it must well, have been like? the engine's practically useless and they've got Richtofen on their tail. I mean, death must have seemed inevitable. Uh, and, and, and Are we due some purple prose now? Yeah, it was not so much beckoning as screaming loudly in their ears. That's wonderful, Gary. Yeah. I now wish I'd put that in the book. You're going to be Lieutenant John McLennan of 25 Squadron once more. The machine could only glide and the manoeuvrability was greatly impaired through lack of any engine power. Von Richthofen attacked all the way down till the machine was but a few hundred feet from the ground. He attacked each time from below and behind it, in which position we were unable to return fire. Only once did he get in front when we managed to get off two bursts with a front gun, but at longish range and without result. What, 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 what is their prognosis in this battle? Well, all they can hope for was to get back down to Earth with their lives intact and destroy what remained of their aircraft. And they now, do manage. They crash land. And, and yeah. uh, do they survive? Yeah, McLennan helps the wounded Greg out the cockpit and then he used his flare torch to set fire to the machine. Now, <clears throat> there is an irony here because... Uh, well, tell me something. What, what, what is the irony? Well, ironically, they actually manage a substantially better landing than the, the, their conqueror. Wrecked off them. Yeah. Well, what happens to him? Well, although their one brief burst of return fire had no impact, the inherent weakness that lurked in the uh, uh, sesquiplane wing structure <laughs> of the new Albatross D3 caused it to crack and forced Richtofen to make an emergency landing close to his recent victims. He comes down to earth with uh, rather a bump and uh, he had the additional embarrassment of actually overturning his albatross. I can imagine his face. How he must have laughed!
Yeah, yeah. He, he probably did because he was no fool and invariably he took every action possible to reduce the horrendous dangers to which he was exposed daily. So it's therefore no surprise to find that after this close escape for a while he switched to flying the Halberstadt D2. Yeah, there were many other scouts, Halberstadt at faults. We tend to focus on the Halberstadt to simplify the narrative. Uh, the wing narrow weakness and the Albatross D3, well, there have been several accidents and they, they, were, they were withdrawn for much-needed strengthening. Uh, yeah, I could do with some much-needed strengthening. Um, <clears throat> now, um, so, th- that's not the only way. It's not only pushing the, the British back and starting to attack them above the actual battlefields. There's sort of another aspect whereby they're showing their aerial strength, their increasing aerial strength. What are the Germans starting to do? Well, they start to bomb the British airfields on a far more regular basis. Now, I always think this is a good idea. If you're going to take on an enemy air force, best take them on the ground. Take them while they're in their beddy pies. And on the night of 21st of January, they, they, they launch a really pretty awful raid on the Trezian's, uh airport where 43 squadron was ba- they had uh, uh, they were they, they were there and and they were alongside the FE8 pusher scouts of 40 squadron who were commanded by a, a sort of pre-war theater goer and and uh, aviator he's a toast of the london stage uh, major robert lorraine who is clinically insane as far as i can see <laughs> and you're going to be lieutenant harold balfour of 43 squadron the petrol tanks had gone up. The doped wings were burning furiously. The dried wood of the hangar likewise, while machine gun ammunition went off with continuous pops. Adjoining the hangar was a lean-to shed which had various mechanics tools. One little sergeant thought that he was being of help by going into the lean-to, which was not yet in flames and starting to throw out spanners, vices, screwdrivers and other implements. Hardly had he started this somewhat futile task, when with a bound Robert Lorraine entered within the ring, darted in front of the assembled squadrons, through the glare and into the shed. Seizing the little sergeant by the coat collar, he pulled him away and hurled him towards the fire picket. Away! If this is anybody's place, it's mine! He shouted in a voice of ringing tones which carried right across the aerodrome. And then, in order to show and quite rightly so, that the destruction of the four burning machines was not irreparable and that he, as one of the, the one responsible, could divert his mind to other matters more mundane, he strode to the middle of the arena and there, in the full glare of the light, performed a perfectly natural function in front of the admiring eyes of the assembled officers and mechanics. What a character! <laughs> so he has a slash, doesn't he? Yes. Now, the newly arrived 43 Squadron, they're equipped with the uh, SOP with one and a half oh, strata. Oh, uh, yeah. That, uh, now, that, that, that is another aircraft from the SOM time, really, isn't it? For, is the SOM in 1917? No, it's in 1916. What was it? It's a, a two-seater biplane. It's got a synchronised Vicar. The first, I seem to remember, the synchronised firing through the, the, the propeller. Uh, that was for the pilot. It had a Lewis gun for the observer. It, it was. It's a multi-purpose aircraft, isn't it? It's quite. It's quite snazzy. Um, bit of a heyday in 1916. By the standards of 1917, where do you think it stands? Well, they're they're, they're slow and underpowered, uh, and when caught flying on their own by the powerful German scouts, they were sickeningly vulnerable. What's the only way? We discussed this with the FE2Bs. What's the only way you could survive? Well, you, you've got to have strong, well-drilled formations. It's the only chance you have. 
And you're um, going to, well, you're going to be Lieutenant Harold Balfour again, not talking about public urination this time. Uh, 43 Squadron. As soon as ever we saw a gathering crowd of Huns above us, we would go round and round in a circle, the whole formation of us, each one chasing the tail of the machine in front, until we formed a perfect revolving wheel. The wheel would then edge slowly towards the lines, and woe betide any German who tried to come down on top of that circle. He would get the concentrated fire of six observers' guns, and brave fighters as they were. No German could face that with impunity. But the Germans were gradually learning, and uh, they, they had a, they, they had their basic tactic was to split one aircraft away from the safety of, of, of the, 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 the revolving circle. Then, if they got one away, they could definitely just kill it uh, uh, in relative safety. And again, you're, you're Harold Balfour. Where betide any one of our people who got out of the circle? I saw this happen twice. On one occasion, the wings were shot off a machine in, uh, in my flight, and one of my best young pilots, a South African named Reimer, and his, and his observer were pitched out into space as the machine disintegrated. I watched Reimer's bright leather coat as his body fell downwards to earth. I could follow it for thousands of feet. The other occasion, I think the pilot must have suffered from engine trouble and had been forced to leave the circle. His petrol tank must have been punctured and the aeroplane soaked with petrol when an incendiary bullet struck it. For one moment it was gliding away from the wheel and the next it was a mass of flame from wingtip to wingtip. What a horrible death, Gary. I mean, it's, uh, it's quite chilling at times, isn't it, uh, reading this stuff. Um, now, the other thing is there might not well, be six, seven, eight of them. There might be smaller numbers. And, and then what would you think would happen? Would they, would they be able to put enough combined firepower? Uh, they're mostly doomed, aren't they? But even more, who's even more vulnerable than the uh, the stop uh, with one and a half strutter? What what's the most vulnerable? Well, the B two, the the core aircraft. The work that they did had not diminished in any way in it's importance. It's just as important as it was the year before. No, they more, may more important. Yeah, and, and they may have had a negligible ability to defend themselves. But what are they? What are they got? What are they got? Well, as long as their cameras and wireless transmitters worked. They're still deadly and functional weapons of war. Every day that weather permitted, they uh, plied their trade up and down the front lines, guiding shells to the points of maximum damage and inconvenience for the Germans below. Inconvenience. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, now, I, th- I think uh, uh, th- there are things going on there. The, the British are learning. They're getting better, aren't they? And uh, they're, they're, the, the technology is improving all the time. What did we say about... Uh, about technology and warfare, it, it 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 is a great. Well, yeah, you give the example of, of the the dual um, big dippers, don't you? That that they're in a race up and down, and at various times you're you're up or you're on the way down because the the enemy are, are moving up. And in this case, the technology has improved to allow ever more aircraft to oper- operate their wireless. <laughs> On a cramped front, so yeah, because because those wirelesses, they had a signal that spread across, and they sort of jammed each other. Yeah. So what could they do? Well, and they, I don't understand this. But no, they you introduced a, a, a clapper break, uh, and that gave the wireless set a six-tone range, so that from the artillery battery, it was easier to identify which aircraft was signalling to. No, I don't understand that at all. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Well, it's like a unique identifier, isn't it, for that aircraft? Right. Basically, it, it, if you've got. 10 aircraft all doing the same thing and you know which pitches. one it is yeah all right, all right. Um, so but they've only got six times yeah well I chose 10 aircraft just to be silly really <laughs> uh, well now uh, so the, 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 this meant what does this mean in effect 
Well, they were also found possible to put up uh, artillery observation aircraft at a rate of four every thousand yards of front without their signals jamming so, each so other. So it really works, this clapper sausage. It does. I mean, otherwise you've just got sound, you know, and you can't you can't identify what that is. What else can you do? What is the eternal answer to improving sort of like uh, more skills? Uh, well, a program of proper properly trained trainee train train uh, you you trained as many observers as possible and that was begun with the intention of improving improving even their morse code skills now it, when you the, the, is this the two hang on so you've got the morse code operator in the aeroplane who's he morse coding to well wireless operators are also attached in pairs to each of the gun batteries Vocal communication wasn't possible in 1917. Uh, definitely not. No. And in the crowded skies, speed of transmission was all important. Both ways. Yeah. So they're making sure that they control. Ah, it's control. Control freaks will enjoy that. They're controlling it, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, signals between the aircraft and the gun batteries were continuously monitored by central wireless stations. Uh, they were established near the front line so that any problems that Why? developed... Well, any problems that developed could be rapidly detected and corrected. Hmm. Now, what about uh, other threats to the uh, B-2s and, and other core aircraft? Uh, how's Archie doing at this phase? The, uh, German anti-aircraft fire. Well, yeah, it, it, the Archie that many affected to despise could also be extremely why? dangerous to the why core is it aircraft. So, why is it more dangerous to them than it is for... Well, one clue is in the word, the faster scouts. Well, the, the, it's the nature of the task. It meant that they're, they're often flying very low and usually in straight, easily predictable lines. And this made them relatively easy targets. Not fast either, yeah. And you're going to be sec t Second Lieutenant Charles Smart of Five Squadron. Now, this is from a memoir at the uh, RAF Museum. I love Charles Smart. Uh, smart by name and smart by nature. The Germans knew what we were up uh, up for and simply squirted Archie at us. We couldn't get away from it. They started on us when we were a good mile over our side of the lines and kept it up the whole time we were in view. One shell went off just under my seat and lifted the whole machine up in the air. I felt sure we were hit, but the machine seemed all right. After landing about two hours later, I found we had been hit, and it is a wonder that a shell didn't end my career. Hit him in the arse, more like, yeah. A large piece had hit the fuselage about three feet behind the small of my back and broke one of the longer ons. Ooh, the machine might easily have broken in two. To cap everything, the en engine conked, conked out. We were right over the lines. Fortunately, I managed to glide back and safely land safely in a field about three miles from the aerodrome. They didn't just fall like stones. They could glide several miles, clearly. So um, so that's one threat. Uh, the, there's a big threat from Archie to uh, the BE-2s. Uh, but the, the biggest threat still scouts, isn't it? German scouts. Yeah, I mean, their prime... What is their prime function? God, you've got to say prime function. Yeah, what their is prime their function was to blind the British eyes in the sky, and it wasn't difficult for them to locate their prey. Why? Because they were flying over Vimy, over the Arras front. They knew where they'd be, didn't they? Yeah, once they'd evaded or broken through the forward British offensive patrols, then they're, they're, they're with the observation aircraft... As regular as clockwork, flying above the... So they were just always there. So they were always there. And it's a murderous business. 
But the Germans, they're fighting a serious defensive war. It's no, there's no room for sort of night errantry, you know, after no. you and all the, the rest of it. The object was to kill as quickly as possible with a minimum possible risk. So best shoot people in the back of the head from uh, while it, before they know you're there. Yeah. Um, does, the, 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 what effect does a constant trickle of casualties have? Well, it naturally undermines the confidence of, of, of all but the foolhardy. These were young men, Pete, many... Well, they're, not, they're still in the teens. Yeah, many of them. Although, initially, they might not have known the meaning of the word fear, <laughs> they pretty soon had a, a fair grasp of exactly what it entailed. I've met your Janet, I know the meaning of the word fear. <laughs> now, not surprisingly, there were many who objected to the constant sacrifice that they were being called on to make for the general good. Of course they were, and, and there would be... I know that soldiers never moaned, but they... they, they but well, they, these are pilots... So they moan. Well, they would moan. Uh, they'd moan amongst themselves. And I suppose Trenchard's, he's walking a pretty narrow line. Um, he, he's got to, does he respond to the, the cries of, for help from his reconnaissance crews? <clears throat> or does he maintain the vital offensive deep across German territory to keep back the German pilots? What, what does he do? What does he do? What does he do? Well, what can he do? If he surrendered to the siren cries for defence, then they'd inexorably inexorably lose all control of the airspace above the battlefields as the German scouts simply push forward and and further forward. We discussed that earlier, yeah. So eventually he compromises and he adopts a close escort of two scouts per artillery observation aircraft, but only in sectors where consistent and excessive losses have been incurred. What else does he do? Well, he also backs them up with a, a, a general line patrols up to seven aircraft, while offensive patrols continue to try to intercept and destroy the German predators before they could get anywhere so near them. So they're still the pushing back, but some of their resources are now devoted to flying up and down the lines in the general area of the reconnaissance aircraft. Hmm. Now, um, uh, so at this point, uh, how did the scouts fly? Were they still lone wolves? No, they'd worked out that uh, they had to fly in formations, acting as one under the control of a patrol leader at all times. Why, why is that so? Fun? Well, we've discussed it. It's because they're flying in. It's it's sensible anyway, but it's also because they were in inferior aircraft. Yeah, it also adds to the impact of an attack when the enemy are surprised and brought into action in favourable circumstances. So if you get an advantage, you then, fly as a formation, you smash into the enemy. Yeah. Now, there were failures, and, and one partial failure of the RFC during January and February of 1917... This is a bit of a failure. Yeah, was that the German construction of the Siegfried Stellung, far to the rear of their existing lines, was not initially adequately reported or photographically reconnoitred. Well, I can understand this because they're busy photographing the Arras and and, uh, and Vimy areas. But uh, nevertheless, they are big. Uh, they, they were huge fortifications uh, supposed to be designed to... Uh, they, they were designed as a safe refuge, refuge should the Germans have to fall back in 17. Um, because they, they were aware that the Somme area of the line had been destabilised by the Battle of the Ankh and things like that. Um, is it a single defensive line now? What no, is it? No, it's a, it's a fortified band that tried to put into action all the Germans had learnt of defensive warfare during the Allied offensives of 1916. The so Germans, they'd actually begun the work in the autumn of 1916. 
but the, 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 um, we, we hadn't spotted it because no, we were but just they were, busy. They were, they were reconnoitring other new German lines. It wasn't the only thing that was going on and they lay closer to the current front and it meant that the enormous significance of the emerging fortifications and, and we knew them as the Hindenburg line and, and yet the Germans, they, they can't hide these new entrenchments. On, on it's, it's such a vast scale. Uh, and, and, you know, if they've got cameras up there, they can't hide them from it. And no. bit, bit by, by bit, bit yeah. you know, sections of the new line were photographed and charted by the, uh, charted by the RFC. Now, the Germans, uh, they've been destabilised by the Somme fight. In, in late February, they begin a series of withdrawals, don't they, for, uh, from, from, from that sector towards the, uh, the, the new Hindenburg line. And that would accelerate in, uh, in mid-March. Yeah, I mean, uh, as an, an act of defensive generalship, it, it, it was, you know... It's brilliant. brilliant. I mean, the, the front shortened by 25 miles and 14 divisions are freed up that would have been holding that. Uh, what can they do during that? Well, they can rest for starters. Uh, they can uh, retrain. And, uh, and as a general reserve, they could use them uh, wherever they were required. Well, how would the Allies respond to this? Well, it's just a month before the Battle of Arras would start in, in early April. Uh, when Nivelle and Hewitt's, Nivelle's plans, General Robert Nivelle's plans for the French offensive and, and indeed for Haig's offensive, were they, were they going to be disrupted, these plans? Could the RFC keep on carrying out its role in the face of the, well, ever-mounting uh, losses? Well, what should we do? How will we ever find out? Well, we can find out in the next episode of our thrilling Bloody April podcast series. Is that by us? It is, Pete. I'm going to listen and find out what happens. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?